Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What's next for Bitcoin? And why does Sam Bankman-Fried want to be able to access FTX assets? Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'll discuss this and more with Natalie Brunel, Bitcoin-focused journalist. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. It's a pleasure to have you here. Before we get into the interview, let's take a look at our latest price analysis. Bitcoin is trading lower compared to this point 24 hours ago. Bitcoin got close to 24,000 over the weekend. That was the highest price since mid-August. Bitcoin is up about 40% in January, which is one of its best starts to a year ever. On the other hand, Ether is somewhat lagging behind. It has only managed to grow about 32% year-to-date only, obviously, compared to U.S. equity markets. That's quite a lot. Ether is trading lower today on a 24-hour basis. It has fallen below $1,600. Coindesk has been looking at potential reasons behind Ethereum's underperformance relative to Bitcoin. One of them is the defensive positioning ahead of the Shanghai upgrade expected in March. It will allow withdrawals of 17.2 million Ether staked or deposited in Beacon Chain since December 2020. Post-Shanghai upgrade, not all of Ether that has been staked is scheduled to be available for immediate withdrawal, but a significant portion of it will be eligible for immediate withdrawal post-Shanghai, which is why some investors worry about how much post-upgrade selling markets will see. One final token we're looking at today is Matic, the native token of the Layer 2 Polygon blockchain. It's down some 5% on the past day. Still, it's up nearly 50% this month. A Polygon co-founder said a network upgrade first announced in July last year is coming soon. This episode of Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App delivers everything you need to stay on top of the world of crypto and your own crypto holdings. It includes a market-leading price tracker, portfolio manager, analytics suite, and newsfeed, as well as a wide array of customizable alerts and widgets. Crypto moves fast, so don't be left behind with over 4 million downloads. The Crypto app is the market's leading app for all things crypto. With that said, let's bring in our guest. Natalie Brunel is the host of Coin Stories Podcast. Great to have you with us, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. Natalie, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Let's just jump in and talk about some late-breaking late crypto news. Uh, according to Forbes, the Biden administration has said Congress needs to, quote, step up its efforts to regulate cryptocurrency. Four senior officials have written the statement that they've warned that it would be, quote, a grave mistake to allow deeper ties between crypto and the broader financial system. They say limited exposure of traditional financial firms to crypto has prevented a wider financial turmoil in the past. 
The White House advisors say, quote, legislation should not greenlight mainstream institutions like pension funds to dive headlong into crypto markets, close quote. The advisors want Congress to expand the powers of regulators such as the SEC and CFTC, boast disclosure requirements for crypto companies, increase the funding for law enforcement and regulate stable coins. Uh, Natalie, how do you think about this latest news flow? Uh, and by the way, we should probably uh, ask you the question particularly, uh, do you make a distinction between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, particularly with regard to legislation? Oh, I absolutely do. It's something that I really focus on in my educational and content work. There is a very big difference between Bitcoin, which is digital property, digital commodity, and crypto. And there's, you know, a lot that needs to be clarified, I think, um, in this space going forward. And that will provide companies that are creating everything from exchanges to, you know, digital equities and digital tokens, some clarity to move forward and, and let consumers and retail investors know exactly what they're getting their, themselves into. Um, as far as regulation, what I am really focused on as well is making sure that policymakers actually understand this space and, and don't put out you know, uh, proposed legislation without really understanding what Bitcoin is, how it's used, how it's programmed, and, uh, and, and maintaining one of the most important things, which is the individual's freedom and privacy. And, uh, and Bitcoin is, is a technology that's engineered to fix a lot of the problems with our current monetary system, to make it more accessible, to provide more opportunities and give us a unit of account that we can rely on that can't be manipulated. And, um, and I really am bullish on what policymakers will do. You know, Bitcoin is already deemed digital property and the SEC as well as the CFTC shares have said that Bitcoin's not a security. It is the only token that stands out as a commodity. Um, it's really a question around everything else. But, you know, bills like Elizabeth Warren's that was proposed that has to do more with privacy and cold storage wallets, those are areas that concern me. And again, we really need to get the education out to policymakers. Their staffs are very busy. They have a lot of things going on, but they can't propose legislation about a space they don't fully understand yet. So how do you understand Bitcoin? You mentioned this idea of a unit of account uh, function of money. How do you think about Bitcoin? How do you frame it conceptually in your own mind? And how do you communicate it to people who are relatively new to the space? Well, I mean, that, that's the really big challenge, right? It's interesting that I'm trying to use my background as a, as a journalist and within media to translate the message of Bitcoin and make it digestible for a mainstream audience because you get so little limited time on, on a platform like television to tell a story. And yet Bitcoin, it took me years to, to really fully understand how bulletproof, how truly decentralized and how secure the network is. But the place that I always start is by questioning the current system. It's almost putting a spotlight and shining a spotlight on the problems that exist with inflation, with the wealth that is stolen from people as they work really hard and have to basically risk the fruits of their labor. They have to figure out how to invest in order to beat um, the pace at which our, our money, our currency is being devalued. And so when people start to ask those questions of their own investment um, you know, strategies and just start thinking about the cost of living going up around them, right? It, it comes down to that basic question that is posed by Jeff Booth in his writings. If technology is supposed to drive prices down, why do we see prices going up everywhere around us? Why is it harder today to afford a house or stocks or the cost of education? Um, and there's an answer to that. And once we, we probe deeper and we see sort of the inequalities and the 
um, the lack of transparency in our current financial system, we start to look for a solution. And so for me, that solution was Bitcoin. And, uh, and I'm really excited about sharing that message. But I, I think when it boils down to it, Bitcoin is a form of money that is truly decentralized and cannot be manipulated or inflated or ever confiscated from you. And, and given today's world, that's more important than ever. So let me ask you a bit of a skeptical question here uh, in terms of Bitcoin and price. So I was joking around at the top of the show that Ethereum is up only about 31% uh, on the year, but that volatility moves in both directions. While the Bitcoin network, uh, of course, remains secure and has been uh, continuing to process transactions for over a decade, essentially flawlessly for the most part, uh, as we look at the sort of the track record of the technology, uh, very strong. However, uh, Bitcoin is up year to date. 39% or thereabouts, 39.56, so almost 40%. On a one-year trailing basis, Bitcoin is down about 39%. So you see this volatility in both directions with all of these digital assets here across the board. When you think about it uh, as an off-the-grid store of value function, what we've actually seen uh, happen is Bitcoin trading very much like a risk asset. Uh, when you see, for example, uh, the uh, NASDAQ 100 rising, it's almost perfectly correlated uh, with Bitcoin. As inflation rises relative, uh, presumably, to the market reaction to the perception of central bank policy, when you see inflation rising, uh, you see Bitcoin declining in price. When inflation moderates, we've seen Bitcoin rising in price. How do you sort of think about those variables uh, on a shorter term basis versus a longer term basis? And how does it fit into the thesis? Sure. Well, Bitcoin does trade like a risk on asset right now because it has such a small pool of investors. When you look at the global picture, about 2% penetration, I believe, globally right now. And, uh, and a lot of people really don't understand it. So I think over the last 10 years, the people who have that sort of informational arbitrage, um, they, know, they know and understand Bitcoin, they're able to take advantage of that. So for me, it's all about time horizons. Right. We like to talk about macro, right? But even, even the macro analysts are talking about the last six months, the last 12 months. Let's zoom out. Uh, Bitcoin is something that I see as the long-term in both investment as well as not just a hedge for inflation, but a solution to inflation, right? So that was the big narrative. Is Bitcoin a hedge for inflation? And we saw it going up and down, depending on what the macro forces were. At the height of the bubble, obviously it reached its all-time high when the money printer was going burr, and now it's it's contracting. And we saw um, the price had a lot more pressure put on it because of the fallout that we saw with FTX and the crypto meltdown. But zoom out again, over the last 10 years, it's outperformed every single asset. Um, the adoption growth is, is steadily trekking along the hash rates at an all-time high. Like you mentioned, the Bitcoin network is stronger than it has ever been, and the adoption continues to grow. So I look at it from the point of view of a revolutionary technology that is on a, a very steep adoption curve, growing faster than the internet. Supposedly, I, I've seen reports that say a billion users by 2025. That's that's really powerful and transformative. And one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about later in this conversation is really looking at Bitcoin, not maybe from our Western privileged uh, point of view, where you know we have the 60-40 portfolio we trusted in for so long, but in developing nations where people have currencies that get debased 50% overnight or 95% in a year, and they're using it in real time as both a store of value and a reliable medium of exchange because of the issues in their own countries. So um, for me, I'm, I'm not dissuaded at all by short-term volatility. I'd rather have an asset that is short-term volatile going up over the long term than a stable asset in the short term that's going down in purchasing power over the years. 
Well, the 60-40 portfolio has certainly gotten hammered uh, recently here in the U.S. But let me ask you this. Uh, so the idea, the notion of Bitcoin is something that could potentially solve inflation rather than being merely a hedge against inflation. But as long as we have to remit our taxes uh, here in the U.S. and in, in fiat dollars, uh, doesn't that sort of imply that we're going to have, at least for the time being uh, and for decades to come, a, a fiat-denominated system where ultimately the ultimate legal tender is, in fact, the U.S. dollar? Well, I definitely do think that the the dollar is going to survive for maybe longer than than even the the bear, most bearish people on the dollar think. Um, but you know, spend your dollar, save your Bitcoin. Right, one's going up in value over time; the other um, is losing value. And one thing that I want to point out: this is actually I need to credit Dylan Leclaire for this. You know, we've been seeing talks about the debt ceiling recently, and over the last. Um, year or so now now we're starting to see a little bit of a rebound but last year we saw stocks and bonds both draw down in a historic way that was only um we've only seen it before twice in 1969 or 1971 i believe and uh, in 1931 and both of those times the us defaulted on its debt but in the first case, they were able to, you know, confiscate people's gold. People people were banned from owning gold privately. And in the second one, we went off the gold standard. And Dylan Leclerc points out that now we're on a totally fiat standard. So how do you default on your debt? In the, in the fiat standard, well, you have to print. You have to print. So over the long run, again, when you zoom out, we have to go further and further into debt. And so what is the solution to that? A solution is returning to hard money. Can we go back to a gold standard? Does that make sense? Does it is it technologically transparent, reliable, portable? No. Now we have this reliable, perfectly engineered form of money called Bitcoin. And I do believe that over time, as more individuals, as well as organizations, as well as sovereign nations come to understand Bitcoin and its its utility and its its um, uh, reliability, they will slowly move into that system. And, and maybe that's far away and we will be using the, the dollar for years to come. But over time, I think that these are these are secular shifts that we are witnessing and we're living in and we just have that recency bias. Yeah, I should, I should point out that one of the controversial uh, points is about whether or not the U.S. has ever defaulted. Uh, there are four uh, potential uh, periods that are usually raised by historians as potential defaults. Uh, for example, the convertibility of bonds and silver certificates and some other things. But there's never been an overt default, uh, for example, on treasury bonds uh, in, in, in nominal dollars. But your point mm -hmm. uh, being that the, the risk is that it's a de facto default if the dollar is significantly yeah. devalued. Uh, and therefore, you're getting paid back in cheaper USD. Um, it really is an interesting point. Talking of which, as we're having this conversation about some of the macroeconomic variables, I wanted to just put up a couple of charts. Uh, first, the chart of GDP. I just wanted to talk a little bit about where we are in terms of this cycle uh, right now. As you can see on the chart uh, up on the screen, this is the real GDP change from previous quarter. Uh, and what you see here, obviously, for Q2022, this is the most recent quarter for which we have data, the last quarter of 2022. You can see this deceleration to a 2.9% positive uh, seasonal annualized rate uh, of growth here in the United States. I also wanted to show some, show some data on inflation. Uh, first, the annualized rate of core personal consumption expenditures. This is core PCE, as you can see on this chart, still significantly above the 2% target that the Fed has set on PCE. Uh, and then I also wanted to show a final chart here. This is the month over month change in personal consumption expenditures, percent change from prior month. This chart shows a clear deceleration 
of the rate of inflation here. This is on a monthly basis. Uh, and the overall aggregate effect of all of these put together is this showed uh, slowing of the global economy, particularly the U.S. economy, as shown here in these numbers. I wanted to ask you, Natalie, if you think about this, and again, we mentioned this at the top of the show, the idea that what we're seeing here is a, a slowing, a deceleration of the U.S. economy and a rallying of Bitcoin, presumably, presumably, because there's a perception of central bank liquidity uh, being injected into the system by the rate of increase in rates slowing down. There's some speculation about moving to a 25 basis point hike uh, coming up later this week. Uh, talk a little bit about how that fits in with the thesis. Is the notion that basically on a short-term basis, you see it trading like a risk asset, but on a longer-term basis, it will trade as something as uh, a more of an inflation hedge, at least in the short term? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there are some amazing macro analysts out there like the Lynn Aldens, who I just had on my show, who point out sort of the, the correlations between uh, liquidity measures such as the PMI with regards to Bitcoin. So we are seeing a rally and you're right. Investors are sort of pricing in this idea that the Fed is going to to pause and and not continue to tighten maybe as, as quickly and as aggressively right. as they were last year. But at least decelerate the rates of increase. Yeah, sure. And we do see inflation slowing. Um, but two things to point out. Number one, there are these lagging indicators, right? We do know that we are seeing uh, economic growth slow, although there are sectors that still are very, very strong, including the service sector, um, employment is still strong. So we have to wait for those shots to sort of kick in, right? I, I love that metaphor. I'm not sure who, who made it last year for the first time, but it's this idea of, you know, you could take a bunch of shots all, all at once and feel okay. But once those shots start to wear and you could fall on the floor, um, you know, pretty quickly. And so that's what the, the, the Federal Reserve essentially did with our economy over the last year. They, they tightened at the most aggressive rate that they ever have. And now we have more debt in the system that we ever have. And so we are still waiting for the consequences of that. I do think that a lot of people are surprised um, at how well the economy was able to hold up with, with these higher interest rates. Uh, but we, still have you know some some time to go before we actually see i think the consequences of these rate hikes uh we we've already seen them in the in the tech sector and those are the first jobs to go but as right. you saw in some of those charts, I mean, people are spending less, they're going further into debt, and that is not the sign of a strong economy. I I, I truly sometimes just don't even trust a lot of these measures because everything from the CPI to the GDP, I don't think that reflects the real economy. And and I'll, I'll give you an example of why the, the GDP number um, is a little bit... Um, it's a it's a gray zone in some areas for me because the GDP has sectors that to me provide no economic value, including things like the financial sector. I mean, if you have people just pushing numbers around, are we actually producing value for the economy for people to become you know prosperous? We have a lot of industries that are are here just because we financialized and monetized so much debt, <laughs> and so I wonder what our economy would look like if we actually had a unit of account, again, at the base layer that was hard money, couldn't be manipulated. And we didn't just, you know, discount the, the cost of capital and drive it toward, you know, mass corporations and, uh, and, and have a system where basically these corporations become too big to fail. They're all buying back stock and we gr grow further and further in terms of wealth disparity. So, um, so I think that there are a lot of factors to, to really look at, including the CPI as well, which I, I believe they're changing the calculation for February. And every time they've changed the way that they measure or calculate CPI, it's always resulted in a lower CPI. So uh, I guess it's, uh, it's going to be to the government's advantage, probably this next print as well. But 
Um, last thing I want to point out is over time to try to sustain these rates, it does become tighter and tighter. So even if you keep rates at a certain level because of the amount of debt in the system and uh, and and rates becoming adjusted and 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 uh, debt coming mature, you're going to see tightening factors that are also going to impact the larger picture. And so I think um, you know even though things like Bitcoin we're seeing a rally right now. I also think that it could go back in the other direction when some of these lagging factors um, basically come due. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Yeah, the nerdy macroeconomic monetary policy term is long and variable lags, but I like your metaphor much better. Uh, it's like doing three shots at the bar and thinking, no, I'm fine, and you're not, because there is this kind of lagging factor, which is always a challenge in monetary policy. I want to take a few minutes here to touch on a few other stories that are in the news cycle. FTX co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried could soon be banned from communicating with certain people. Federal prosecutors want to modify his bail conditions and prevent him from speaking to current and former employees of FTX and its linked trading company, Alameda Research. Prosecutors claim Bankman Freed messaged a current witness as well as FTX U.S. General Counsel Ryan Miller. Separately, SBF's lawyers want him to be able to access FTX assets. Bankman Freed has been prohibited from accessing crypto cryptocurrency purchased and held by FTX and Alameda. That's because the government pointed to unauthorized transfers made from Alameda wallets. Lawyers for SBF claim there's no evidence that he, in fact, made those transfers himself. So they requested for that bail condition to be removed. Finally, Australian regulators seem to have raised concerns about FTX months before its collapse. According to The Guardian Australia, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission began to look into the company in March 2020. It was particularly concerned by how much margin customers could access. And finally, one other story I wanted to touch on. Coindesk reports that South Korea is planning to start tracking cryptocurrency transactions. This part of efforts by the local Ministry of Justice to crack down on money laundering. In a report published last week, the ministry said it will initially use third-party software. This will monitor transaction histories, extract information on transactions, and check the source of funds. The ministry plans to develop its own system by the second half of this year. Natalie, it's clear a toughening environment in many parts of the world. Uh, how do you think about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? How do you think they can fare in terms of protecting people's privacy while making sure they remain on the right side of the law? Yeah, so many interesting stories to unpack there. Um, going back a little bit to what I mentioned earlier, you know, pr privacy is key. It's one of the reasons why this technology was invented, why the cypherpunks were passionate uh, about this. And so we need to um, maintain individual rights and sovereignty. Um, and it's just so interesting sometimes when I see uh, policymakers who don't fully understand this technology make proposals like that, because certainly I don't think that some of these politicians would like for us to be able to creep into their bank accounts, you know, their legacy traditional 
personal bank accounts and be able to see every single time they make some sort of transaction and how much is in those those accounts or wallets. So, um, you know, we really need to to make sure that they're educated, that they understand, and point out just how much their legacy system that they have all this regulation and and uh, and, and red tape and how much that is used for money laundering through shell companies and through people that are um, you know able to to send trillions of dollars for everything from drug trafficking, sex trafficking, and beyond. So maybe we should address the problems in the current system before looking at this new industry that, again, they don't fully understand. Um, the SBF stuff, really interesting as well. Um, one of the, the articles that you pointed to, the Australian regulators that saw 20x, you know, that didn't raise any flags for people. One 1.4x is considered extremely risky, much less 20 to 100x is what you were able to do sometimes on FTX. And in some ways, you know, Sam Bankman Fried is sort of like a a gift to journalists and prosecutors because he just keeps running his mouth and uh and it's so bizarre that he's been reaching out to people um it's it's like he can't control himself you know so and a lot of that will be used against him and so i i really do hope though that this is an example and and a really big lesson for the industry sort of a, a reckoning so that people come to understand why you know in a largely opaque space where companies are creating tokens then using market makers to trade amongst themselves and pump up the value and basically allow retail investors to be left holding the bag with their, you know, life savings basically squandered. That should be a big wake up call that not only does crypto need more clarity in terms of what makes a digital security, a digital equity, what, you know, what, uh, what is a, how can a, a, crypto exchange register. And then here's Bitcoin and why Bitcoin has the properties of money and why Bitcoin is like the internet in terms of trying to shut it off. You know, there is no headquarters, there is no language, there is no CEO, there is no board, there is no, you know, plan in 10 years of, of where you're going to unstake your Bitcoin because that doesn't exist. Bitcoin is, is a bearer asset and a true commodity. So, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting couple of years, I think, and uh, and I, I I do think that SBF coming back to him, I do think that he will serve significant time for what he did. Well, I should say first, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has been charged with a crime here in the U.S. Uh, in fact, I believe eight crimes, uh, but of course has not been convicted. He has pleaded not guilty to all charges, and of course, here in the United States, we are innocent until proven guilty. Uh, let me ask you this uh, before we move on: any exciting upgrades that you see in the Bitcoin? roadmap. What are your thoughts about where Bitcoin is going in the future uh, about functionality, security, uh, speed, transactions, all of those things? Yes, thank you so much. Um, I'm really watching the Lightning Network, and I really do encourage people to look into some of the projects that are coming up. Even in the bear market, people are building and people are trying to get Bitcoin in the hands of people that need it most around the world. And so one area that I'm really focusing on, both in terms of, of learning for, for myself and what I can share, but also for in terms of my content and my interviews, is Bitcoin and Lightning in developing nations. Um, that's actually going to be the focus of my next two two episodes. Uh, now, really for people who aren't familiar with the Lightning Network, give us a little bit of background on it, uh, the goals uh, and where it is right now in terms of the roadmap. Yeah. So Bitcoin Lightning is the second layer protocol that allows for 
cheap and fast transactions. So they don't happen on the, the Bitcoin blockchain. They're settled um, with lightning nodes. And so it allows you to basically transfer value much faster than waiting for the, the, the Bitcoin transactions to settle on the layer one blockchain. And a lot of exciting um, advancements are happening in that space. The, the three that I kind of want to point to right now that are really um, exciting for me. Number one, uh, Strike has partnered with Bitnob. They made an announcement at Bitcoin in Bitcoin Africa, where basically they're going to facilitate faster payments through Lightning in Africa, where Bitcoin is gaining adoption faster than anywhere in the world. 54 nations, so many of them have currencies that have been devalued by half. Many of their currencies are still actually uh, controlled by the French treasury. There's a lot of people who believe that colonialism is alive and well and, and really taking advantage of people that are working there and taking advantage of their resources while they're not able to be productive and and sort of enjoy and and growth from the fruits of their labor working really really hard there and so um i'm really excited about that partnership as well as something called machankora a lot of people don't realize that most people actually have access to cell phones in in the developing world but a lot of them don't have smartphones and so machankora is this really cool lightning app that allows you to basically transact without having a smartphone. So you can use one of, you know, I had a, a Motorola phone that could only do SMS text messages. Now, now that's empowered so that you can actually transact on the Bitcoin Lightning Network with that, um, you know, type of technology. And then the third is not so much Lightning, but it's Bitcoin overall, Fediment, where it's, you know, you know the saying, not your keys, not your coins. Fediment is not our keys, not our coins. And it's a protocol that allows for basically a group custody with with um, with trusted custodians. And so that will actually help adoption as well, because there are so many people who love the idea of Bitcoin and even love the idea of self-custody, but they're, they feel a little bit overwhelmed by the idea of becoming their own bank and, and, and just securing their own Bitcoin. So now this turns it into kind of a collaborative effort, especially also in, in other nations around the world. And so there are so many projects that are happening and and bitcoin adoption and education is spreading everywhere and so those make me very very excited and i'll be discussing some of those on my show in the coming weeks yeah it's so interesting you've raised so many interesting points there uh this idea of these sort of federated e-cash prototypes uh for developing uh these custodial solutions that are more distributed so that you don't have the concentrated risk of a single individual losing the custody of their keys. Really interesting. And I, and I think especially something that I'd like to cover more on this show that I find to be really fascinating, which is the use of Bitcoin in the developing world, places where they don't uh, share necessarily uh, the same advantages that we do here uh, in the developed world in terms of, uh, in terms of a, a relatively stable currency, rule right. of law, um, a relatively mature banking system for all the flaws right. that we have here uh, in the in the uh, developed world. Obviously, the challenges in emerging markets are considerably greater, and the idea that you could essentially have the ability to empower people to transact in a currency that's more stable than what they have. By the way, when we talk about the price of Bitcoin, it's important to note we usually here on this show are talking about it relative to the U.S. dollar. Yes. Uh, if you look at the performance of Bitcoin against uh, the most impaired emerging markets currencies, obviously yes. that curve looks much better. So it really is a sort of just a whole fascinating. Uh, world mm -hmm. of developing technology, particularly uh, for things like uh, constrained network bandwidth, as you pointed out, some of the hardware access points, uh, obviously much more expensive in local terms. A really fascinating and interesting point. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought it up.
Yeah. And the fact that in some of those areas, there's so much stranded energy and cheap energy that you can access in order to mine Bitcoin and create circular economies and really allow for the velocity of money to increase within those communities, as opposed to sending that money back to the West, right? So when a project or when a loan gets approved to some of these nations, that money just flows right back to the West. Um, Alex Gladstein and I recently had a really interesting conversation where he looked at sort of the aid and assistance going to the emerging or developing world. And it used to be, you know, billions going there and, and you want it to stay there, right? And, and help those communities grow. But what we see actually in the numbers is all that money comes flooding back because it's Western companies that are building and the resources are coming out of those countries. And so, you know, I think that Bitcoin actually will empower a lot of local communities and a lot of people around the world to finally, you know, it's not just the American dream anymore. It could be the Nigerian dream, the El Salvador dream, the Guatemalan dream. I, I just... I believe that part of human dignity is to have hope for the future, that your life is going to be better, that you have opportunity to make something of yourself. That is something that's universal to me. And that, that idea can spread around the world with something like Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Of course, we should say uh, with all emerging technologies, there is risk. Uh, and of course, none of these uh, sort of very sort of promising ideas are in fact certainties. Natalie, we've got some in, uh, an incredible number of viewer questions coming in. Uh, what do you say? Would you be up for answering some of those? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, but first, for those watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to get early access to Real Vision crypto content, and it's always free. This is where you can find the latest Rao's Adventures in Crypto, a great conversation between Rao and Mike Novogratz. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto to hear the Galaxy Digital's CEO's expectations for the year ahead. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. Okay, on to viewer questions. The first one comes to us from Kevin W. from the Real Vision website. It's possible one or more bankruptcies could be settled in the next few months. I believe he's referring to uh, some of the outstanding bankruptcies that we're dealing with uh, in the space uh, right now, most recently Genesis, likely resulting in many creditors getting pennies on the dollar. Natalie, how could this be good for the Bitcoin crypto ecosystem later this year? Interesting question from Kevin W. from the Real Vision website. <laughs> well, I think in a system that isn't propped up by the money printer and manipulated money, you actually have a system of cleansing that's healthy for the ecosystem so that the products and the services and the companies of real value can grow. I, I think we saw a lot of fog and, and that's just sort of the way in the, in the fiat world, right? We're, we don't really understand the real value of some of these companies because when money is easy and money is cheap, uh, valuations are not uh, proportionate to earnings. And so I think that we're seeing, um, you know, some of that healthy cleansing that happens when, let's say, you know, you have a fire in a in a in a forest that takes off the the weeds, and and you finally see what what can actually grow and become more robust and sustainable over the long term. So, the one thing about it is it's really painful for the retail investor that got suckered in, and you know, just I understand I understand the intention for a lot of people wanting to get that seven ten percent yield because you work so hard for your money and everything is getting more expensive around you and you want to save for your future maybe for a home maybe for your kids education maybe for a nice vacation you should be able to do that right that's why we work we work so that we can enjoy um what we work so hard for and yet some people got 
totally fleeced and lost all of their money. And so there needs to be some protections and clarity in place. And I think we will see that. But again, I, I do believe in capitalism, right? Risk is rewarded and it's also punished. And so we shouldn't have a system of bailouts like we do in the, in the fiat traditional world. In crypto, it really is sort of this wild, wild west, more capitalistic industry where if it fails, you might not see your money back. So you have to be very, very careful. Personal responsibility is much more important. You have to do your homework and really understand where you're placing your money and where you're keeping and holding it. Well, you know, it's interesting, Natalie, because it's very much a double-edged sword. You mentioned this idea that central bank policy has effectively uh, kind of benumbed markets. It's it's taken out the price signal. It's driven us to a point uh, where you, you effectively have a, a kind of moral hazard type of situation. You have an artificiality to the uh, inflation of asset prices. But the flip side of that is also a challenge, right? If we go back to the Great Depression, 49th Secretary of Treasury, Andrew Mellon, the great quote uh, that I've read here on this show before, liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate the farmers, liquidate real estate, purge the rottenness out of the system. High costs of living and high living will come down. Enterprising people will pick up the wrecks from less competent people. And it was a disaster. We had the Great Depression that spanned uh, for a very long period of time because there wasn't an ability uh, to you know, effectively prime the pump to stimulate the economy. You had this downward cycle, uh, Fisherian debt deflation. So there really are kind of challenges on both sides of the ledger uh, in terms of the, the risks and also the, the potential mitigating factors that central banks provide. I, I don't pretend to have the answers to it, but it really is a challenging question. Um, well, two things about that. I really urge people to read books like The Bitcoin Standard, which has a different perspective on what happened in the Great Depression and why actually that was drawn out and why it was as difficult as it was. And it has a lot to do with um, intervention and uh, price controls and basically not allowing the economy to actually come down and let the chips fall as they, they may, which would have arguably, uh, many people believe, especially the Austrian economists, that that would have washed things out faster and we would have been on the road to recover sooner. And an example to point out is right after uh, World War I, between 1920 and 1921, we suffered a very short uh, mini depression, a, a, a recession, but there was no intervening. That was Warren Harding, who was president at the, at the time. And we saw a recovery that was super, super fast. Um, and then eventually, as central uh, bankers took off and 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 wanted to uh, help the, the UK sort of balance out what had been uh, a lot of uh, money printing and manipulation of their currency because of the spending on the on the war effort. We ended up with two bubbles, uh, one in the stock market as well as as real estate in 1929 that ultimately popped. Um, and so I think we do need to look at at lessons in um, in history and uh, and just remember, you know, that again, this is the the sort of the long term. We're seeing banking policy that in the short term can tighten and we're seeing rates increase and decrease. But over the long run, because we're so indebted, we ultimately have to print. And so it's it's crazy to me that we now, you know, an average job is not enough. Right. You can't just go go to your nine to five and expect to have your money go up in value over time, you have to basically either risk it in the stock market and try to do your research, maybe hire a portfolio manager, or you have to become a landlord or try to own as many uh, you know houses as possible because our money just holds no value anymore. And so this is an alternative system. It's not one that's gonna be adopted overnight and it's not one that many people easily understand, but Bitcoin offers this, this alternative parallel system that isn't based on the type of manipulation that we constantly see 
see in, in the legacy finance world. And, and again, I do truly believe in capitalism where access to money should not just go to one class of people or organizations that already, you know, have the monetary spigot flowing and there are no consequences for whatever they do with that capital. They buy back stocks and they make their executives really, really wealthy at the expense of the labor class. And, you know, as we run more trade deficits and, and as we've, you know, basically created this U.S. global dollar dominance at the expense of the working class, I think when it starts to hit people that they realize that something is off, they grow more frustrated. We see more populism. They divide into teams. And I think, what is the solution to that? For me, it's, I, it's Bitcoin. Well, one of the great things about getting to host a show like this is you can provide both sides of the view, uh, both sides of the picture. So the Bitcoin standard, uh, the decentralized alternative to central banking by Saifuddin Amus, states this uh, point uh, very well and very clearly and develops it. If you want to catch the opposite side of the argument, the Keynesian side, uh, check out John Kenneth Galbraith's The Great Crash of 1929, The Great 19. 55 history uh, of the Great Depression from the perspective of the Keynesian or the Neo-Keynesian. So obviously we like to do both sides here and to give both sides the op opportunity to speak and make the case. But I think it is important to understand that we do definitely see challenges. I think even Keynesian economists at this point acknowledge the challenges uh, You know, of 14 years uh, of ultra-accommodative monetary policy causing distortions. One of the points that you mentioned, uh, asset prices spiraling higher, the cost of living attempting uh, to find housing. Uh, there are lots of markets where uh, folks are just priced out, particularly people in their 20s and 30s just don't have the ability to access the housing market as a buyer. Uh, and that the American dream that our parents had in many ways is much impaired uh, by the challenges that we've seen by the rising cost of living, particularly the inflation in asset prices. I want you to move on to the next question here. Uh, this one comes from Ralph H on the Real Vision website. How did the stock market draw down differ in the two years she cited? Seems like a regular bear market to me. Uh, any comments on that? Well, I think that we've we've seen some of the biggest tech stocks, the, the growth stocks, just you know, pl plummet lower than Bitcoin drew down. I mean, some of them 70, 80%. I think that that was pretty surprising. Um, and a lot of these, you know, changes have not happened since 08, 09 and some of the big, big bubbles that have popped in the past. So, um, you know, it's interesting that when before Bitcoin hit its all-time high, it was actually stocks that rallied first. So I wonder if that'll happen again when we really resume a bull market. But it's so funny when I see people talking about, oh, it's we're back onto a, a, a we're in a bull market again. I I don't see that. I see too many headwinds because of the mm -hmm. macro forces and some of the debt that's coming due, the lagging indicators. I think unemployment will increase. We're already seeing it first in the growth um, areas, and and I think we're going to see it across the board in the economy as well. So I think it's just too early, you know, to tell. I think that stocks do have ha have a ways to go in on the downside. Um, but you know, obviously not financial advice. It's just I'm I'm just looking at it from the the wider picture of we have too much debt, and at some point they're going to have to kick in the money printer again. And I don't know what that what that exacerbating event is going to be. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's a great question. Another one from Ralph. Uh, I don't know if I should answer this myself. I might get myself in trouble. Uh, how would Natalie? How would Natalie? How would you assess the quality of crypto journalism, specialist crypto sources versus mainstream media sources? Great question. <laughs> um, you know, I I think that the crypto journalism industry, the media industry, I I give them kudos for being the ones that followed and broke the the FTX news first, right? Um, mainstream media, which is my background and my previous employers, they have some work catching up, you know, to to the knowledge level that people within the space have. They really need to you know, create departments and have people, correspondents, anchors that really understand and focus on, on what is Bitcoin, what is this asset class and understand, like start to peel the layers back in this technology. You see a few here and there, but overall, I think mainstream media does not have a good understanding on what is Bitcoin, what is crypto, how, how, how do they differ and why they even exist in the first place. And, and until we have more of that understanding, I think in large part, I compare this to sort of the 90s when the internet came out. There's that viral clip, you know, the Today Show anchors where they're sitting around a couch and they're talking about the at symbol and what, right. you know, what the internet is. And they sound, it's so funny when you look back on it, right? They just sound so silly. Um, it's transformed our lives every Every business is now an e-commerce business, and I think that in the in the future, everyone will be transacting in uh, in this form of currency. It was like Bryant Gumble and and um, Katie Couric, yeah, and Katie Couric. That's right, that's right. But when I worked at Yahoo Finance, Katie Couric used to drop off food on my desk when she would feed her team. So Katie Couric is always aces in my book. Oh, that's that's really nice. Yeah, I actually did an interview with uh, someone from her team. She has, she now is Katie Couric Media, and talked to them about Bitcoin. So. That story hasn't come out yet, but hopefully soon. Yeah, I'm going to get myself, you may be present, Natalie, for the day I get myself canceled on Real Vision. I, here's, the, here's my take on this, Ralph. So, so there are challenges with both. That's just the reality. I think everything that Natalie said is completely true. Uh, mainstream media has really struggled to get their heads around what digital assets are, uh, what crypto is, what Bitcoin is, uh, what smart contracts are, just the basic fundamental mechanics of how these technologies function, what the use case is, uh, and what also the the sort of the, the inspiring reason behind them uh, has been. That's been a real challenge for mainstream media. That said, uh, frankly, crypto media by and large just doesn't have the chops when it comes to covering basic macro issues, business, law, finance. There's just a lot of gaps there. Frankly, when all of these stories uh, were hitting the fan in terms of uh, what was happening over at Genesis, FTX, I was reading the stories in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times because they had the experience to understand what a bankruptcy filing looks like, what the risks were, what the legal components of it. So it's still very much developing. And I think that it's one of the things uh, that we do here at Real Vision is to find uh, the ability to actually merge those two very divergent worlds, what's happening in mainstream finance and macro and in crypto. That's one of the reasons why uh, I think it's so great to be able to do this show every day uh, because we have the ability to talk about some of these things, I think, in a little bit more depth uh, than we see elsewhere. Next question from Vincent R. on the Real Vision website. I wonder if Natalie thinks the space needs a bigger lobby so government can get educated knowing the SBF 
story. It really is an excellent point. Are we doing enough to educate policymakers and legislators around what digital assets are, their potential, and also some of their risks? There are some really great grassroots efforts out there and some great people that I've partnered with. Um, you know, I, I want to give shout outs to CJ Wilson and Amanda Cavallari and the Natalie Smolenskis. And there are so many people, Dennis Porter, they are doing outreach on a daily basis, individually, as well as with their organizations. And so the efforts are there. Do they need to grow? Absolutely. Um, you know, lobbying, I'm a little bit like, I hate that word because I just, at some point, I'm, I'm very against the idea of, you know, paying for any sort of, um, you know, paying for a place in the room, right? So we, we need to do our best to, to teach politicians about the space, help them differentiate between Bitcoin and crypto. But something that you kind of alluded to earlier, which is, I think, so fundamental, whether you're talking about policymakers or media professionals, so many people lack a fundamental understanding of economics of what is money, of the history of money, the, the business cycle. And so I think it's hard to appreciate things like Bitcoin until you start to understand the problems that exist within the current system. And we here are so privileged in the West and, and, and yeah. in the US, even though we have so many issues, it's far worse elsewhere. And I just don't wanna see Bitcoin get politicized or get grouped into things that, um, you know, like, for example, talking about it from the myth of, oh, it's only used for money laundering, nefarious activities, or, oh, it uses too much energy. That is the wrong context with which to look at this revolutionary technology. And so, um, you know, just as we made strides to move from horses and carriages to cars and from cars to airplanes and from phones and, and paper to the internet, we're, we're in that slow transitional process to help people learn and engage with this technology. And we need to be thoughtful about it. Um, I just, you know, lobbies sometimes make me wary. Yeah, and I think I suppose it's important to point out that airplanes used to crash a great deal in the beginning, uh, and obviously, uh, as years have gone by, those have become an increasingly safe uh, technology. It's far safer to fly than to drive, as most people know, uh, and maybe that's the metaphor for the development of the digital asset space. Well, and also the New York Times reported before the Wright brothers flew that it was never going to happen, and the chances were basically, you know, uh, the, you know, the. Um, like getting hit by lightning. I mean, it was just like so impossible that we were ever going to fly and, and look at what we were able to accomplish. And much less, those were two, I believe that the Wright brothers, they were um, bicycle engineers or bicycle makers. They so were. Sometimes ideas come from unexpected places. And, you know, there are a lot of naysayers whenever a new technology comes out, but it's the people who are building, the people who are actually the ones, you know, creating this, this technology and, and making sure that it's secure. They're the ones that are going to change the world. And they might be the 1%, but the 1% is the one that drives, you know, real change, ingenuity, entrepreneurship, and, and transformation. Yeah, and lo and behold, the mainstream media behind the curve and reporting on digital assets and the promise there as well. Uh, the next question comes to us from YouTube from Aaron Winkler. This is an interesting question. Do you think there will ever be a Bitcoin-based stablecoin? 
that's a good question. I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I in some ways it's the opposite of the unit of account. <laughs> the idea being that the U.S. dollar remains the unit of account, and you have something that's anchored to it as a state. Right. I, I I don't see why there would be a need. Right. I mean, you would just I, I do envision a world where someday we're transacting in Sats, but in the near term, I do see the the value in the use case for stable coins and for just access to a digital dollar, especially for for places around the world. Um, as as we sort of discussed earlier, I do think that the U.S. dollar with its dominance in how many transactions uh, it's you know are settled in the U.S. dollar and how many countries still hold uh, U.S. dollar denominated debts in their in their reserves and their treasuries, I, I do believe that the dollar is going to live on for some time and and people will be using stable coins as that as that rail. But in the end, why would we need a a Bitcoin? I mean, Bitcoin will be the stable coin if it if it gains the adoption that we expect. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Bandit8899 on YouTube. It's a bunch of questions, actually. Are you concerned that the Bitcoin blockchain generates little fees due to low usage? Do you think that there may be a risk of minor capitulation when miners depend on fees, especially after all the coins are mined? Um, you know, th those are some interesting conversations to have to speculate on of what will happen in 2140. Uh, for, for now, I, I choose to channel my, my energy and attention elsewhere um, because I think that those problems will be solved along the way. So I, I, don't, I, I don't have a great answer to that. Right now, I think that what we have seen is a lot of the miners have been strained, especially because the, the price has been far far lower uh, for, for a lot longer than many of them expected. And so we do see some insolvency and some issues that still need to be, um, you know, that still need, I think, some washing out in, in the system. But, you know, Bitcoin's hash rate is growing, adoption growing in the long run. I think it will be very profitable for the, the mining pools that are that are in this space. Um, but right now it's just it's a it's a bear market and this is what happens. Yeah, um, I have a firm policy of not speculating on anything that's going to happen after I know I will be dead. But it's a great <laughs> question, theoretically, and an interesting one, Bennett. So thank you for that. Uh, great conversation, Natalie. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your final thoughts and key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been um, really inspiring to see how many people are interested and curious and, and just really asking more thoughtful questions, especially after the FTX fallout. I think that that was really a moment uh, for a lot of people to recognize that um, if they don't know something in the space, they really need to, to start, start to probe and, and ask questions and, and demand more transparency from companies. So, um, you know, I just, I just urge people, especially if, if they're in the space, and they have Bitcoin, I just say, you know what? HODL, zoom out, don't worry, enjoy your life a little bit, don't watch the price every single day. And if you're not in the space and you're curious, really start to ask the questions about what is money? What is the cost of living? How is that changing? Who has access to capital? Who creates money? Who, who sets the price of money? Start asking those questions. Start looking for those answers because I believe that at the end of the road, when you start to look for the solution to the problems that you, you find, you're going to find Bitcoin. Yeah, I would only add to that, you know, not financial advice and an incredibly important aspect of this is understanding your asset allocation. This is why I generally recommend that people talk to someone, uh, a wealth advisor, a financial advisor to get a sense of what their big buckets are uh, so that they don't ape into anything that's going to cause them a great deal of damage, particularly these assets that have a great deal of short term uh, volatility. Boy, you know, my takeaway is I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Natalie. I hope we can do it again. Um, you know, in terms of uh, some of the, the points that we talked about earlier, I think that there is a very broad consensus that some of the 
side effects of ultra accommodative monetary policy lasting more than a decade at this point are more or less uh, not something that's really subject to much dispute. I think even Keynesian and neo-Keynesian economists recognize what's happened in terms of the massive asset price bubble, some of the challenges that we've had in terms of cost of living, making the housing market difficult for people in their 20s and 30s to access, in some cases, impossible to access as buyers. These are real material challenges. Uh, and I'm, I'm, of course, as most people know, I'm very passionate about Bitcoin. I think the technology is fascinating. It's what got me involved in the digital asset space uh, to begin with. I don't know that I go quite as far as you uh, in terms of Bitcoin being a cure to inflation, at least not in my lifetime. But I certainly think it has a very strong use case in terms of the digital asset, uh, e-gold, digital gold, off-the-grid store of value, potentially, uh, if we were to see risk. Uh, but, it, but again, must point be pointed out there has been a great deal of short-term volatility as an asset class and in fact that what we've seen uh to date at least is it trading like a risk asset with a very high correlation uh to other risk assets for example uh the nasdaq 100 but a great conversation incredibly thought-provoking really a pleasure to have you here with us thank you so much for having me and i, I love the word that you said you know it's a possible solution and we're focused on the solution rather than just pointing out all the problems in the world, right? Because I think that when you turn on the news or any form of media today, you see so many people getting very political and just throwing mud across the room and attacking one another. And Bitcoin for me has been very fulfilling and motivating and challenging because of the constant knowledge that I'm gaining, but also because we're trying to build a better future, one that's more accessible, more equitable, has more opportunity. And there's something that's really infectious about that type of you know, energy and, and, and about having those types of conversations of, okay, we recognize the problems, but what is the solution and how can it grow? And what challenges can we overcome? How can we overcome them together? And, and how can we build a better, a better future for all of us? And so I, I, um, I'm excited to chat with you and hope we get to chat again. Oh, thank you. One, one thing I would just add to that, you know, whether or not you decide buying Bitcoin or other digital assets is right for you, that's an individual decision uh, that no one on the internet can tell you uh, what to do on. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand how these technologies fundamentally work, because very clearly we have moved into a world uh, where the digitization of assets is coming, whether or not one or the other coin will benefit. Uh, that is much more speculative. But when we come back and have this conversation, uh, for example, in 2033, it's very likely that we're going to live in a more digitized world. Uh, in a world that's more interconnected, in a world where internet money uh, has become a much greater factor in everything that we do in our lives, whether it's social networks, whether it's Web3, whether it's commerce, uh, all of these things obviously are moving in that direction. So important to point out. Once again, thank you so much for joining us, Natalie. Thank you. This episode of Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App is your place for all things crypto. Download the Crypto App today on Google Play or iOS App Store. That's it for today. We'll be back the same time tomorrow with Benzinga CEO Jason Rasnick, who will join us live. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody.